Bienvenidos and welcome to City Breaks Seville, episode four, The Golden Age. And to talk about that glorious 100, 150 years when Seville really was Europe's boomtown and centre of an ever-growing empire stretching east and west to lands unknown. I'm going to use the episode then to tell the story and to refer to three main buildings in the city that you can visit today if you want to find out a little bit more about all these things. They would be the Golden Tower, the Torre del Oro, built as part of the city's defences in the 13th century, now a maritime museum. Secondly, then the Admiral's Quarters, a part of the Alcazar, which we didn't really talk about in the episode on that building. And lastly, the Archivo de Indias, which was originally the trading centre for all this toing and froing and money-making and empire-building, and which today is an archive of all the documents to do with that period. But to start with, perhaps if you've stood down by the river in Seville, you found it difficult to actually imagine all the things that were going on there in the 1500s, because it looks rather unlikely. Laurie Lee, visiting in the 1950s, wrote about this very feeling in his book A Rose for Winter. Standing in Seville Harbour, he wrote the following about what he could see and what he knew its significance to be. Quote, Only a few hundred yards of dock, set on the banks of a slow river, fifty miles from the sea, yet once the greatest harbour in the world. Columbus, Pizarro and Fernando Magellan, the Santa Maria and the Little Vittoria. From here they sailed to find a new world or to be the first in history to encircle the globe. So then, first of all, a little bit of the story. It really began with the arrival on the throne of the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella. They were very keen to enhance Spain's reputation, to make lots of money. They had a lot of debts and they knew that wealth was to be gained, perhaps, from exploring. And for Isabella particularly, there was a sort of missionary element to it as well. She'd set about trying to restore Christianity in Spain take away from the importance of the Muslim faith. And she harboured a bit of a desire as well to export Christianity across the world, get her explorers and sailors to take it with them and sow some seeds many miles from Spain. And so it was that she was persuaded to fund explorers like Christopher Columbus to go and find a new world and claim it for Spain. And thus the era of the conquistadors was born and how successful it soon became. William Byron, who was the biographer of Cervantes, described how, at the height of this period, scores of ships would set sail from Seville every spring, and scores of ships would return in the autumn, laden with all sorts of goodies, or, as he put it, quote, pressed deep in the water by their loads of precious metals, hides, pearls, ambergris, timber, medicinal plants, spices, sugar. The list really seems to be endless, but actually that list didn't include perhaps the most important two things that the ships were bringing back, and that was silver and gold. A statistic for you, between 1503 and 1660, it's thought that 16 million kilos of silver arrived in Seville, that being an amount three times as much as the whole of Europe had had up to that date. In the same period, 185,000 kilos of gold also made their way into the city. All this money, of course, was soon to be followed by 
lots of people wanting to take advantage, and they flocked to Seville from Spain and from all over Europe and further afield. So Seville became a massive trading hub, receiving, using, sending on all these things that came back from the New World. William Byron describes this very well when he writes about the crowds of people arriving in Seville. Quote, like bee-eaters around a hive, flitted vessels from all over Europe. The streets swarmed with Portuguese, Breton, Flemings, Ragusans, Moriscos, Blacks. The world came to Seville. And indeed, as you would expect, the population began to increase massively. It's estimated to have been at about 60,000 in 1500. By 1588, that had nearly tripled to 150,000. Seville was one of Europe's boom cities, rivalled perhaps by Paris or possibly by Naples, but not really by anywhere else. Everybody knew that Seville was the gateway to the untold riches of America. The streets were thronged with people, the river was crowded with ships, bales of merchandise piling up everywhere, and people in power beginning to think about what they could do with this wealth, what fantastic new churches and palaces and such like they could build, funded by all this new wealth. But it certainly wasn't only about money, it was also about power and influence and extending an empire. Some people understood this very early on, as early as 1496, one Antonio de Nebricha, whose job title appears to be court poet and historian, wrote the following, quote, The title of the empire is in Germany, but its reality lies in the power of the Spanish monarchs, who send out their fleets following the course of the stars, to the Isles of the Indies and the New World, linking the Orient to the western boundary of Spain and Africa. Ferdinand and Isabella were certainly interested in the wealth that would come back to them from the lands that were conquered, but they were also very much interested in the idea of expanding the Spanish Empire, gaining new territories, such that they signed an agreement known as the Capitulación with the explorers whom they were paying to go off exploring, in which they made it clear in black and white what they thought their rights would be. And certainly one of the rights was that the crown would own the new territories, whatever was discovered. They did also agree that the explorers would be given a portion of the wealth, but not for nothing do historians refer to this phase as things like the epoch of overseas colonisation. This quest for ever-increasing power is nicely described in a book written by Elizabeth Nash called Seville, Cordoba and Granada. Here's what she has to say. The fleets that left Seville for the New World were bound both for trade and imperial rule, bent on the dual acquisition of riches and power. Ships carried governors destined to rule the overseas possessions, soldiers and cannon to defend the power of the Spanish crown against enemies. Trunks of letters and orders signed by the king to impose royal authority upon an empire that was to become as bureaucratically ordered as Spain under the obsessively methodical Habsburgs. And you have to say they certainly did succeed. Parts of the Americas from California right down to Argentina became Spanish. It's a matter of written record that people began to think that maybe one day the whole of the world would be controlled by Spain. The absolute height of this was perhaps a hundred years or so after Columbus first discovered America, say in the 1590s, when Seville had officially managed to get monopoly of trade with the New World. 1608 is recorded as a year when record trading occurred between Spain and South America, but that was in fact the beginning of the decline. By 1640, for example, there was a year when no silver arrived 
at all from the New World. And historians have used up lots of pen and ink trying to describe why it was that from such a position of wealth, power and influence, Spain and Seville went into decline. One of the reasons given is the fact that much of the wealth they made was spent on palaces and cathedrals and monasteries rather than on building up their industry. It's also the case that Seville was very much a trading hub, a place from which wealth went out again to all over Europe. So the wealth wasn't staying in Seville. It was either being spent or it was being exported. Another reason for the decline is said to be the fact that the river wasn't actually ideal for huge ships, and the ships, of course, were getting larger and larger, used to silt up quite easily. And instead of tackling this, doing something about it, the city seemed bent on just enjoying its prosperity and not noticing that actually it was going into slow decline. From 1700 or so onwards, in fact, Seville no longer did have monopoly. Ships were choosing to land and leave from Cadiz instead, because that didn't involve going 50 miles inland and was much easier. So, so much then for a little rundown of the rise and fall of the Age of Empire, the Golden Age in Seville. Let's stop for a moment and just think a bit about one of the major personalities of the era, one Christopher Columbus. He had links to Seville, of course, in all his years of fame. He certainly spent time in the city. He didn't always leave, set sail from there, but he was certainly there quite often visiting the king and queen and persuading them to back another journey or bringing back the spoils from the one he'd just finished. He'd actually spent quite a number of years trying to get financial backing for his ideas, not really getting anywhere, but luck came his way in 1491 because somebody who knew both of them recommended Columbus as a good explorer to back to Queen Isabella, who was just putting her mind to the problem of what to do about all the debts that Spain had, thinking about how good it would be to gain territories overseas, adding in a bit of missionary zeal, thinking that not only did she want to restore Christianity all over Spain, but that she would quite like the opportunity to export it, send it off to faraway lands. So all of these things combined to mean that she agreed to finance the first of what became four major voyages undertaken by Columbus. He set off in August 1492, three ships, a hundred men, and they arrived in October of the same year in the Bahamas at an island which he named San Salvador. And on the same trip he then went on to Hispaniola, which is modern-day Haiti, and returned to Spain in March 1493. It's interesting to read in one of his logbooks that Just at the moment when he was arriving to the land that he was hoping to have discovered, Spain, and Seville in particular, was very much in his mind. So here's what he wrote just as they were nearing the first lands of the Bahamas on that day in October 1492. Thanks be to God, the sea was as calm as the Guadalhivir, and the air sweet-smelling like April in Seville. You can read a lot about the journeys of Christopher Columbus from his own logbooks, his diaries, So I thought it might be interesting to just quote a few bits and pieces from those. Here he is, for example, describing how land first appeared on that evening in October 1492 and what he decided to do about it. It was two hours after midnight, so they took all the sails down and lay in the boats until the next morning when they decided to reach out for land. This is what he first saw, quote, Immediately some naked people appeared, and the Admiral went ashore in the armed boat, as did Martin Alonso Pinzon and Vicente Yanes, his brother, captain of the Nina. 
The Admiral raised the royal standard and the captains carried two banners with a green cross which were flown by the Admiral on all his ships. On each side of the cross was a crown surmounting the letters F and I for Ferdinand and Isabella. On landing, they saw very green trees and much water and fruit of various kinds. The Admiral called the two captains and the others who had landed and demanded that they should bear faithful witness that he had taken possession of the island, which he did for his sovereigns and masters, the king and queen. A day or two after that, there's an extract in which he's writing back to the king and queen, telling them of how he set about trying to win the friendship of the people on the island and work out what they had that might be of interest to him and to his masters. Quote, In order to win their friendship, since I knew they were a people to be converted and won to our holy faith by love and friendship rather than by force, I gave some of them red caps and glass beads which they hung round their necks, and also many other trifles. These things pleased them greatly, and they became marvellously friendly to us. They afterwards swam out to the ship's boats in which we were sitting, bringing us parrots and balls of cotton thread and spears and many other things, which they exchanged with us for such objects as glass beads, hawks and bells. In fact, they very willingly traded everything they had. That all sounds quite friendly, doesn't it, really? Newly arrived and fair trading on both sides. But he gives himself away a few pages later on describing how keen he was to know whether they had any gold. He watched carefully to see if he could see any. And then this is what he writes to describe what happens next. Quote, I saw that some of them carried a small piece hanging from a hole pierced in the nose. I was able to understand from their signs that to the south, either inland or along the coast, there was a king who had large vessels made of it and possessed a great deal. I tried hard to make them go there, but saw in the end that they had no intention of doing so. I decided to remain till the afternoon of the next day, and then to sail southwest, for according to the signs which many of them made, there was land to the south, southwest, and northwest. They indicated that men from the northwest often came to attack them, so I resolved to go southwest to seek the gold and precious stones. And we know from the statistics, of course, that much was found, much was taken back to Seville, and much was spent by Ferdinand and Isabella. On his return, of course, Columbus got a hero's welcome, coming in loaded up with exotic plants and animals, golden ornaments, and even people he, on his first voyage, brought back six Caribbean Indians, for example. We know that he made three further voyages, that he discovered countries like Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Trinidad, all of this leading to fame and fortune, but of course also bringing up the question, to what extent was this really just exploitation? We have on record a Christian monk from the period, who actually went out to South America with the conquistadors, who quite soon was persuaded that actually exploitation was absolutely what it was. His name was Friar Bartolome de las Casas. He came originally from Seville, and he ended up as a bishop in Mexico from where he became a really fierce critic of Spanish colonialism. He published a book entitled A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies, and here, just to give you a flavour of it, is a short quotation. I have seen with my own eyes these gentle, peaceful people, subjected to the most inhuman cruelties that have ever been committed by cruel and barbaric men, and for no other reason than insatiable greed, the hunger and thirst for gold on the part of our own people. It perhaps won't surprise you to learn that his book was pretty swiftly banned by the Inquisition. They 
huffed and puffed and said it said cruel and fierce things about the Spanish soldiers. Well, yes, I think that is what it was saying. But we know that he tried to stick to his guns. There's a story, for example, of him refusing to give one of his colonial landlords the last rites until the man agreed to free all his slaves before he died. So there's definitely two sides to this question. We know, for example, that Columbus himself imported 1,200 Indians on one of his trips. He brought them from Haiti and he was intending to sell them as slaves in Seville. Hundreds of them died en route and were tossed into the Atlantic. But you can't deny that Columbus, on the whole, has remained a hero in Spain today, a fact underlined by the idea that the Expo 92, the big exhibition held in Seville in 1992, was held in that year particularly because it was a celebration of the 500 years since Columbus had landed in America. So that's a little of the history of the Golden Age. Let's move on to thinking about places in the city today where you can go and see the fruits of it or learn a little bit more about it. I'm going to mention three in particular, and the first one is the Golden Tower, or the Torre del Oro as it's called in Spanish, which was built in 1221, so in the reign of the Moors, as part of the city's defences. It was linked to the Alcazar, linked to the city walls, and it was positioned on the river. In fact, originally there were two towers, one on each side of the river, so that a mighty chain could be used to link the two, stretched right across the water, and therefore to prevent ships that they didn't want coming into the city from getting any further. The Torre del Oro is very much a landmark of Seville, certainly the last thing sailors will see as they're leaving the city, and the first thing they will spot as they scan the horizon to see when Seville is going to come into view. It's been used for many purposes. It was originally used as a defensive tower to protect the river. It's been used as a treasure house. It became a place where when the ships arrived and all kinds of treasure was being unloaded and somewhere safe was needed as a place to store it, then this well-defended tower was one of the places to use. It's been a debtor's prison in its time. It's been an ammunition store. I think it's thought that Napoleon's troops stored some of their weapons there. Perhaps its most colourful and also terrible use was in the 14th century, when Pedro the Cruel, the aptly named as it turned out, used it as a prison for his mistress. He locked her up inside, claiming that she had resisted, quote, his carnal demands. And so he decided he would lock her up in there, and I don't know whether he ever let her out. Perhaps she relented. Perhaps she decided being locked up was preferable. Today, the building's used as a maritime museum, so you can go in there and learn quite a lot about the nautical history of the city, see nautical charts and portraits of naval people, flags, uniforms, navigational instruments, and generally get the flavour of Seville as a great maritime city. Why is it called the Torre del Oro, since it doesn't seem to be made of gold? Well, there are various theories about that. One is that the name is derived from the Arab name, which was Buri al-Dahab, which means something like the golden shine, and that the golden shine came either from the tiles with which it was decorated on the outside, or perhaps from the fact that they would be reflected in the river in the moonlight. Possibly that's where the name first came from. Possibly the reason why it stuck was the period of history when it was known that treasures from the New World, unloaded from returning ships, were often stored here, so the idea that it was full of gold was really not too fanciful. Second place in the city where you can see something of the maritime history is actually inside the Alcazar, in a set of rooms called the Admiral's Quarters. 
These date from 1534, when a trade consulate was set up, called in Spanish the Consulado de Comercio, to promote trade in the city, to settle disputes, to rule on who could and who couldn't be given contracts to set off on ships to the New World. It was all done very properly, very bureaucratically, described quite nicely by a civilian historian called Francisco Morales Padron. He writes the following about what happened once your name was registered. Quote, After registration then, would-be sailors were, quote, marched in military fashion, preceded by pipers, bagpipers and clerics bearing candles. Among those marching were soldiers with greyhounds and other fierce dogs, horsemen, torch-bearers, musketeers, ensigns and shield-bearers, decked with all their paraphernalia, and in the rear the mule-trains with luggage, surgeons and various ships' craftsmen. They crossed the bridge of little boats to attend mass in a monastery of Triana, where the flags were blessed, and then immediately boarded ship. You very much get the picture of people being in control, the whole thing being a vast and rather complicated enterprise. And all of that was run then from these rooms in the Alcazar. In Columbus's time, it's known that these rooms, particularly the one known today as the Admiral's Quarters, were the place where Queen Isabella received explorers, either before they set off or after they returned. We know that she met with Columbus there several times. We know that she also met with Magellan and Elcano, two other sailors, who were planning, and in fact in the end succeeded in carrying out, what turned out to be the very first circumnavigation of the globe. All of that thought up in this room. If you go to visit, you'll see a chapel, just next door to the Admiral's quarters, and a massive altarpiece hanging on the wall called the Virgin of the Navigators, which shows different types of ship that were used at the time, shows navigators, Columbus and others, kneeling before Mary and being blessed by her just before they set off on one of their voyages. It's also a place to see coats of arms of lots of different people, including Columbus himself, models of ships, various things to do with seafaring. And then the third place I wanted to mention is a big building just opposite the cathedral, known as the Archivo de Indias, or the Archive of the Indias. Large, impressive edifice originally opened to become a trading place. The whole thing started because traders were often down in the centre of Seville. They would congregate on the Patio de los Naranchas, or on the Gradas, the steps of the cathedral, and shriek out their offers, trying to entice people to trade with them. Sometimes, if it was raining, apparently they even went inside the cathedral to carry on business. And at some point, people began to object to this. And so chains were put up, separating the cathedral from everywhere else to keep them out. You can still see the chains today. And this lovely building was put up to be a trading house, a centre. You can see just outside it a large stone cross, which is called the Cruz del Juramento, the, the cross of the oath, the place where you would swear and know that because you were doing it just by the cross, that really you had to stick to what you'd said you would do and that you could trust the person you were dealing with to do the same. As trade and running the empire declined, of course there was less and less need for this building, and so a new use was found for it. It became the main archive of all the things connected with Spain's American empire, and it's in that capacity that it opens its doors today. You can go and look round. It's got, would you believe, over 80 million paper documents, dating from 1492 right up to the end of the empire in the 19th century, 
So in there they've got some of Columbus's logs and letters, paperwork written by all sorts of very well-known people, other explorers like Cortez, for example, George Washington, the American president, a letter from the author Cervantes, before he did much writing, asking the king if he would please grant him a position in the Americas. Cervantes was refused, and so the Spanish have been wondering ever since whether, if he'd got that job, he would in fact never have written Don Quixote. In addition to written documents, there are lots of maps, over 8,000 I believe, including some of the original maps of the new colonies done on the very first visits. Clearly, all of this can't be on display, so that's why it's called the House of the Archives, I think. Most of it is archived away, but there certainly are several rooms of display cabinets where you can look at some of these things. And I dare say, if you're an actual scholar, you can probably ask in advance to see things which aren't on display. It's also a place where they have temporary exhibitions. So when I went, for example, there was a really interesting one about all the different foodstuffs which had been first brought to Spain by the early explorers. So a whole big room of tables of spices and coconuts and even the humble potato with explanations about which countries they'd come from and what they'd been used for when they first were brought. The building itself is quite impressive, so it's nice to visit just for that reason. Massive grand pink and marble staircase, acres of classy wooden cabinets and bookshelves and so on. And definitely a place where you really feel the gravitas, the weight of all that history and the empire, ex-empire, standing behind the city of Seville. The Lonely Planet describes this building actually as, quote, the most effective statement of Spain's power and influence during the Golden Age. I think because there are so many other aspects to modern Seville, the modern city for a start, and then the Islamic influences, all the aspects of Andalusian culture, bullfighting, flamenco and so on, it actually is quite easy to almost forget this very important era in the city's history, when it was really the centre of exploration worldwide. So a visit to the Archivo de Indias and a little while spent down by the river, or indeed wandering around the port area of the city, which is called the Arenal, all of these things help you to remember those aspects. So that's more or less the end of the episode. We're going to leave the golden age behind in the next episode. I hope you feel I've given it proper attention here. I want to use next week's episode to talk about two traditions from Seville, which are two of the things that make the city so well known today, namely the Semana Santa, the Holy Week, leading up to Easter, in which all the religious processions are held, in which people come from all over Spain, and in fact many other corners of the world, to see. So we're going to talk about that, the history of it, what it's all about, what happens actually in that week, and also about a second set of days, I don't think it's quite a week, but a second festival, which takes place just a few weeks after the Semana Santa, and is called the Feria de Abril, the Spring Fair, the April Fair. Also an annual event steeped in history and tradition, for which many people come to Seville. Might take us a few moments too to talk about a little bit about some of the other churches and convents and their traditions. So, all of that in a week's time. For the moment, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Muchas gracias. And I look forward, hopefully, to your company next week. So, just sign off for the moment in Spanish style with that lovely word for goodbye. Adios. <laughs>